Hi, I'm Diora and this is Broccoli Book Club. This episode is the author interview. I'm happy to be joined by James Dashuk, the author of this month's book, Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation and the Loss of Aboriginal Life. James is currently an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Health Studies at the University of Regina. Clearing the Plains tells the true story of Canada's history, revealing how and why Indigenous communities started disappearing when European traders first set foot on the land. In the span of 20 years of research, the author has looked through countless primary sources detailing the cold, methodical and exploitative events which stripped Indigenous people of their life, land and legacy. He's passionate in using his research to make Canadians reckon with their dark past. And I couldn't wait to speak to him to find out how his work began. Just a heads up, when I spoke to James, he was in his cottage with his dogs, so you might be able to hear them in the background. I've always been interested in Indigenous issues. I grew up in northern Ontario and we spent a lot of time, as we call it, in the bush, canoeing. And uh, my friends and I spent, oh, a month and a half on a snowshoe trip to the coast of James Bay in my early 20s. So I'd always had uh, kind of a romantic view of bush life, uh, you know, the sort of Indigenous life. Moving to Western Canada, to Winnipeg, the home of the Hudson's Bay Company archives, I realized that there's a gold mine of historical records there. Also, I guess what really struck me when I moved to Western Canada was just the disparity between the Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations. Uh, at the time, this is 30 years ago, the police were sicking German shepherd dogs on people who were kind of sleeping it off in alleys and stuff like that. Very colonial, I guess, in, in our 21st century um, nomenclature, you know, there were a lot of social issues that needed to be dealt with. So I think a, a combination of all those things, I wanted to figure out what the origin of that gap. And even these days, there was a, a federal government cabinet minister just a few years ago that said there's a 15-year life expectancy gap between Indigenous people in Canada and the rest of us. So Indigenous people are our neighbors. I'm not Indigenous myself. How do we get to that crazy situation where one group of people can expect to live a decade and a half shorter just for the fact of basically their race or their ethnicity? Mm -hmm. And is this health disparity what made you look into also diseases and the impact of diseases on these communities historically? One of the ongoing discussions, I guess, in the anthropological community and the ethno-historical community is the impact of introduced diseases. Indigenous people didn't have diseases like smallpox, for example, which was the greatest threat to human health in all of our histories. So the debate over just how monumental that population drop has gone on for probably, I don't know, 50, 60 years, maybe. So I guess, you know, one of the main things was how do we get from a situation at the point of contact or maybe just before contact when indigenous people here in my area where bison roamed the northern great plains where they went from the tallest population on earth with one of the best diets to when i ended my study in 1891 physicians who were coming out here with the canadian government were saying that entire communities were sick with tuberculosis and what i wanted to do is i wanted to figure out what the origins of that disparity is and basically track the health history because uh, many of my my history colleagues talk about political marginalization, that kind of thing. If you take that one step further, 
you know, there are health outcomes to political decision. That was the point, I guess, of clearing the planes. Yeah, I thought you connected those things so clearly. And I can't believe I'd never really thought about health in that way before. And it even just made me think about the disparities of health within different communities here in the UK. And also, you know, with COVID-19, how different communities have been affected and how health issues are so socioeconomic, but also historical. Absolutely, for sure. And I mean, this puts even greater pressure on politicians and policymakers. If you develop a policy that works well, people are going to thrive. If you take the other side of that equation, you know, people are going to suffer. And what do you think was the most shocking piece of research for you? Huh. You know, it's funny. I spent so much time on doing the research. I probably spent 20 years off and on, you know, working on different projects and adding whatever information I had into that one sort of big narrative. The one thing I had probably the most trouble with, and this might be my, you know, my male privilege, my my white privilege, is the level of sexual assaults that went on during that early reserve period. You know, there were um, a whole bunch of parliamentary inquiries after a short-lived insurrection in 1885. And many government employees had been charged or were let go from the civil service for basically exchanging food for sex. And I remember, oh man, 15 years ago, maybe even longer than that, trying to wrap my head around it. And basically on on our national broadcast or on CBC, there was a story about United Nations aid workers who had been caught doing essentially the same thing with food delivery in Africa. So I guess the lesson for me was that, you know, there's a small percentage of people that are going to take advantage of a situation in any way they can. Absolutely. I thought that was really shocking as well. Was there anything that didn't make the cut in the book? Oh, you know, it's funny. Uh, The early editorial comments were, this is really good. Uh, There's just too much information. Like you have to cut it back. And because I can't really take orders, I just kept adding more stuff to it. So we had a copy editor who actually took about 20% of the volume of the book. And one chapter that involved Northern Canada was just taken completely out of the book. And do you think the stuff that didn't make the book, do you think you would publish that in the future? Is that something you'd want to work on in the future? Or is it just not for anyone to see? Well, it's on the back burner. I'm actually working on another project. Uh, Talk about privilege. Uh, I won the sabbatical lottery at the beginning of 2020. You know, as the rest of the world was in a panic, I spent six or eight months out here alone at my cottage working on another manuscript. And what I've been working on is a very similar story, kind of the intersection of politics and environment and disease and indigenous settler relations on the West Coast. What I've been looking at is indigenous people's access to vaccinations. And I know you said that it was about 15 to 20 years of research. Mm-hmm. But how long did it take to complete the book itself? Well, that's a good question. It started out as my PhD dissertation, and then I had a contract working for the medical school at my old university at University of Manitoba. And we were doing a historical study on tuberculosis during the fur trade period. Every job I had that, you know, that was working in this area, I just added basically those themes to that narrative. Like I said, from start to finish, I bet it was probably pretty close to to 20 years. Wow. Wow. Not working full time. (laughs) No, I know. But that's still an amazing amount of time to put something together. And it, and it absolutely shows. And just out of curiosity, who did you have in mind when writing the book? You know, who was the reader? Hmm. That's another good question. So 
uh, I guess my PhD committee for the first little while of it, or the you know the first uh, iteration. But we had a, a professor, crusty old old guy with a with a heart of gold. And when he told us as grad students, you know, we're doing our masters or you know sometime early on in our career, he said. As historians, you want to write to an informed member of the general public. You don't necessarily want to have so much jargon that only your colleagues in the same field can understand it. And I guess I was paying attention that day because I really did aspire to make Clearing the Plains as accessible as possible to a general reader. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the one thing that you learned about yourself in the process of making this book happen? Uh, huh. You know, maybe it's uh, it just dealing with my own insecurities. If I wasn't sure about something, I just, you know, stopped the typing process and just kept reading until I assured myself that I understood the situation. So, you know, it doesn't make for quick writing, but I think it makes for stronger writing. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to be getting anything wrong either. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for being so vulnerable about that. I think that's really great. And what do you think the impact of the book has been since its release in 2013? And also now in, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, has there been kind of an uptick? During the pandemic? Yeah, uh, for sure. And we've actually, this summer has been a very, um, liminal, I guess, sort of experience for us in Canada, because what's been happening is a few years ago, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about our residential school history. So I guess just at the end of Clearing the Plains, there was a movement, the Canadian government basically took Indigenous children from their families, from their reserves, and sent them away specifically to re-socialize them under Christian tutelage, Anglicans, Catholics, that kind of thing. And There were so many abuses. You know, there was a prime minister a few years ago who was even a conservative who said, this is the darkest chapter in Canadian history. We have a pretty high opinion of ourselves. But over the course of the last summer, we've had ground-penetrating radar surveys on the grounds of some of these schools and some of the graveyards. And we in Canada have uncovered more than 1,200 unmarked graves of children at these residential schools. So there has been a lot of soul searching, I think, here in Canada over the last little while. And um, there's been a lot of frustration. So Canada Day, our Confederation Day, is is July 1st. And statues of Queen Victoria and even Queen Elizabeth II were toppled and destroyed. And so the government has really been working hard to deal with that situation. They're spending, I think, $320 million to assist people with research efforts, the ground-penetrating radar and the mental health supports for survivors in the schools. Yeah, this has been a real challenge for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of Canadians are going to have to reconcile their history. Um, Yeah, I was wondering, because I have heard about that, and it's honestly horrific news. Why did it recently kind of come back into the news cycle? Did something spark that off? Because I know that there was awareness about the treatment of Indigenous children in those residential schools already before, but it seems like definitely within this year, there was more conversation. I think this recent sort of news cycle started at the end of May at a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia, where they did the ground penetrating radar and they found Basically, there are site disturbances. They can't determine that they're specifically graves at this point and, you know, until they're disinterred. And I guess that's a whole other discussion. But they found the, the remains of 215 
graves of children that weren't marked. So a neighboring indigenous community from Rajana, just a couple hours away, found 750 unmarked graves, if you can believe it. Now, those weren't all children, but you know what I mean? Like this is a, a pretty brutal experience for community members as, you know, the children that disappeared generations ago are being discovered and recognized and people are taking that history back. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It, it's it's so shocking. Yeah. Sorry, I'm a bit speechless. Um, so Clearing the Plains was first published in 2013. And of course, we're now living through a historic pandemic. Have there been any similarities between your research into how disease spread to the First Nation groups in Canada and how disease is actually affecting vulnerable communities today worldwide? One of the things I I do in my role as a health studies professor is to talk about the social determinants of health, right? So these are the non-medical forces that shape probably 80% of the health arc of our lives, if you want to think about it that way. As I tell my students, you could build a hospital on every corner and it's not going to make that big of a difference because when you go to a hospital, you've essentially lost your health. So things like social economic status, um, housing, education, you know, sort of those social forces. And really, say in the smallpox period, in the early chapters of Clearing the Plains, there was sort of a, you know, an organic component. Indigenous communities didn't have acquired immunity, just, you know, for a bunch of environmental and, and historical reasons. But say in the tuberculosis period, social conditions were so impoverished on First Nations communities, on reserves, as they're known, that they created the conditions for the explosion of tuberculosis. And then by the late 19th century, physicians would come west and they realized that so many people were sick, like entire communities were sick with tuberculosis, that they essentially wrote those communities off, you know, like that's sickness is part of the identity of Indigenous people. And you know, the, there are, I'm sure there are communities, you know, that are essentially being written off because the developed world is is hoarding vaccines, is doing, you know, what they can to take care of their own populations and not necessarily doing their best to help others. Yeah, absolutely. If our listeners wanted to learn more about the histories of Indigenous groups in Canada, are there any helpful introductory resources that you'd recommend? Oh my, there are tons, even say video resources like YouTube. The National Film Board of Canada has had Indigenous filmmakers, one in particular that I'm thinking of right now, Alanis Ombomsawin, an Indigenous woman filmmaker, has been making films about Indigenous issues for the National Film Board of Canada for probably 55 or 60 years. She's in her 80s now and is still producing a film a year. If someone wanted a crash course in the Indigenous history of Canada, that would probably be a pretty easy way to do it. It would, you know. Now, I've got a few questions about you. What was the journey to you becoming a historian? My grade 12 graduation present was to go and run a marathon on Baffin Island. I think it was 800 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. It was the late 1970s. Canadian government was subsidizing a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, I'd spent a lot of time in the bush and really wanted to pursue my interest in Indigenous issues. But what I realized was, is that, or for me anyways, ethnology, you know, going to live among people and, and you know, sort of seeing what they're doing, 
really didn't get at the heart of, uh, I guess, those long-term trends that I explored in clearing the plains. So I went from being an anthropologist wannabe to going to the historical record, the Hudson's Bay archives are the second biggest corporate archives in the world. More than 300 years of records written by Brits, written by Orkney men, but explaining what's going on. The recorder would, would write where they came from, who they were, how many children they had. They were probably so happy to see anyone because they were sitting in a shack somewhere. Wow, that's so interesting. What are the three books that you think have shaped your life? Okay, well, one that has shaped that has shaped my work is a relatively obscure book by a medical historian from McMaster University in Hamilton, whose name was Charles Rowland. It was called Courage Under Fire, A Medical History of the Warsaw Ghetto. So as the Warsaw Ghetto was being starved and like, you know, we know the, the story of the Holocaust, the people in the Warsaw Ghetto felt it was so important to leave a record that they kept basically kept records on their own starvation. Dr. Rowland's work was probably the most profound history book I've ever written. I could not put it down because there was nothing more important than learning that story. And in the 15 or 20 years that the book had been in the library, less than 10 people had taken it out. Wow, that's amazing. I tried to model Clearing the Plains a little bit on Jared Diamond's Gun, Germs, and Seal. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. I am actually, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's trying to answer how do we get to a point, but there's so many different variables that have led us to that point, where if you just follow one of them, you know, um, and actually this was one of my my things in grad school, because I had a an undergrad degree in anthropology and a multidisciplinary field called Canadian Studies, when it was time for our grad classes, my colleagues who'd only done history, to me, I don't know if it was at a disadvantage, but they had one way of looking at things. And I had a different way of looking at things just because of my experience. So I don't know, maybe widening out the base of the tent, that kind of thing. So looking at Jared Diamond's work as a model had an impact for sure. I haven't read that book, but I have read Collapse. So I'm kind of familiar with um, his work. And so, yeah, I totally get that sense that you were trying to, what you just called multiple causation, you know, looking at an issue, but also trying to analyze different factors at the same time. So yeah, I definitely see what you did there with your book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some people who've read it, it's like, oh, you spent three pages not talking about the issues dealt with in the title of your book. Yeah, but I'm trying to provide the context. So when I get to get back to the point, Exactly. Context is key. And what about the third book? I think another one that that had a a pretty important impact on me as a historian, and this is, I don't know, kind of arcane because it was someone's PhD thesis, was Arthur Ray's Indians in the Fur Trade. It was one of the first history books. Ray is actually a geographer, so an ethno-history book, I guess. It was written in the 1970s, and he was one of the first academics, probably as a grad student, have access to the Hudson's Bay Company records when they moved from London to Winnipeg in Manitoba. And so his work used those those Hudson's Bay records that I was talking about a a little while ago, but he also had a chapter on, on the impact of disease written back in the 1970s that still stands up today. So uh, I guess that was the work where I got to see the impact of disease in relation to economic change, cultural change, colonialism, or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
my reading list is growing. <laughs> is there anything that you read which isn't related to the research? Or do you think it because you just read so much for the research that you don't want to read anymore in your spare time? You know, this sounds absolutely terrible. But because I read all, like, that's what I spend my work day doing. Uh, I'm not actually that much of a bookworm. I prefer to go outside and ride a bike or, you know, sort of uh, do more physical things. In one sense, I'm in the, I might be in the wrong business because I, I sort of like that tactile thing. So is there one person dead or alive who you'd love to have a conversation with? Wow. You know, I can't think of who it might be, but maybe I'll share something with you. I was telling you about that professor who told us we should be writing for an informed, you know, member of the general public. And what he told us was, as historians, we should write like George Orwell, like clean, you know, straightforward. And so my role as a health studies professor, I had an English prof who was very interested in technical writing to be the writing advisor for my students. And so sometime during the term, my students are presenting their work and they had a whole bunch of fancy words, uh, forthwith, heretofore, those kinds of things. And uh, after two or three presentations, I kind of timed out and it's like, where are you guys getting these fancy words from? And it turned out it was Andy, the poet, who was getting them to put them in, into their reports. Okay. And then so like I criticized my students for actually listening to what their writing tutor had to say. So I had to go to Andy and apologize to him, you know, like Andy, you know, I was taught that George Orwell should be my model for writing. Without blinking an eye, Andy with a straight face said, I hate George Orwell. So we agreed to disagree on writing approaches. Wow. I don't know if George Orwell level of simplicity sometimes can be a bit too reductive when you're talking about historical things, but I definitely think anything that is more accessible than less accessible is good. And I think it's very hard to, when you know so much about something, to be able to condense all of that information in that accessible way. But I think it's so rewarding because actually then if someone understands what you're saying, you've got more people interested in your work and research. Yeah, for sure. And um, I purposely left out jargonistic words, even words like colonialism. I don't think colonialism is in the index of clearing the plains. What I tried to do was tell the story without necessarily labeling it. You know, the, the old expression, telling a book by its cover, if, you know, you can see certain catchwords and you know where the author is coming from. You know, for me, when I read it, coming from my own, I guess, political perspective, I was like, wow, this is really confirming, actually, I everything I thought, you know, I, I was thinking already in terms of colonization, capitalism, extractivism, all of these unsustainable kind of trade yeah. and environment issues, all of these things, erasure of histories. But yeah, I can totally see how someone who might not necessarily come with that perspective might actually learn something. And then because they're not being told, oh, this is a left-wing perspective or this is a right-wing perspective or whatever perspective, then they're more able to accept the truth of what actually happened and get them yeah. somewhere closer to the middle, I guess. A few years ago, one of my colleagues, Andrew Wolford, he's one of the leading Canadian scholars on genocide, wrote an article in a literary review essay of Clearing the Plains. And he said, by not being judge and jury, by, by not using genocide or any of those key words, he's actually advanced the recognition of what happened that is labeled genocide. Because I'm not scaring the reader off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Well, finally, my question is, and you've already said which big project you're working on, but are there any other projects you'd like to tell our listeners about? Um, this British Columbia project, if I can get get this done and, and do it up to you know the standards I aspire to, this will be a very powerful story. Like I said, 20,000 Indigenous people died in the span of a few months, and there was almost no impact in Alaska because the Russians who owned Alaska, who owned that territory at the time, preemptively vaccinated people. And so the story I'm working on is a story of, of not only disease, but access to vaccination which again is pretty salient in these days. Absolutely. You know, Canada has a, has an identity of, you know, benevolence and humanitarianism and stuff like that. And the more we uncover about our history, the more we find that's not really the case at all. And I think, like I said, we're, we're at a time of reckoning. There's a lot of very serious discussions going on just around supper tables and that kind of thing. So, mm. uh, I mean, as a historian... I don't know, like, you know, that's that's the goal, right? To get people thinking about their own experience. I want to say thank you to James for coming on today's episode. It was a very striking conversation and it definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Educated by Tara Westover. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voice note at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jaja Mohammed, assistant produced by Roy Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson, and mixed by Rob Fincham. This is a Broccoli Production.